Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 58th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is vanity and selfie culture. I'm joined by Jessica Helfand. She is the author of Face, a Visual Odyssey. This wonderful book is published by the MIT Press. Jessica is a designer, artist, and writer. She's taught at Yale University for the past 20 years. She's a co-founder of Design Observer, has had additional roles at a variety of institutions, ranging from the American Academy in Rome to the California Institute of Technology. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you for having me, Dan. Absolutely. So give us a brief sense of what this book is about, if you don't mind. Well, I grew up with a mother who collected portraits and a father who collected phrenology hints. So maybe there was a foregone conclusion in there somewhere that I would eventually write a book about the face. But the short, short answer is I came upon an amazing book from 1902 called Vaught's Practical Character Reader, which you can actually download uh, for free through um, uh, archive.org. And I thought this book was so ridiculous and so fascinating, and it's filled with illustrations about reading the face. It was published in 1902. And I got very interested in in the idea of face reading and facial diagrams and the fact that people actually at one point believed that you could look at someone's nose and know whether they were treacherous or look at someone's ear and know whether they've made a good parent. And I bought the book and I read the book and I cut the book apart and I put the illustrations up on my wall and I stared at them for a year. And I came up with an idea to write a book about just that. Why is it our faces remain so fascinating, so immeasurably full of all kinds of mystery? Uh, And so the book was an attempt to solve some of the mystery. Uh, That's a wonderful explanation. And indeed, of course, the the faces where four of the five senses are located, how we read identity, sense of attraction, often uh, signifiers of race and gender, so many things uh, emotionally expressive. So we'll have no shortage of things to get into. I'm going to start on kind of the, the soft side. I, I know you do artwork yourself. Um, you want to tell us a bit about your artwork and or maybe uh, favorite portraits or self-portraits that you know done by yourself and other artists? You're very kind to ask. Uh, I'm a, I've been a pretty serious painter for uh, about 10 or 15 years now. And the... Um, I paint on top of photographs, uh, and then I get rid of the photographs. And I'm because I come from a family of collectors, I'm very interested in sort of excavating the image before I build the image. So there's always this kind of reconstitution of something that never begins with a blank canvas. The paintings I'm working on currently, uh, and this may interest you, Dan, knowing a little bit about your knowledge of this subject, uh, you can generate a face uh, algorithmically through something called a neural network or a GAN. And uh, one could easily do that, but because I'm interested in the specificity of features, I'm actually 
uh, researching and sort of harvesting pieces of faces and making fictional people. So I'm making them through collage. I, I reassemble them digitally and then I paint them and they're very large. They're a meter by a meter and a half, which is about 60 by 40 inches. And something happens when you composite a face and you harvest it from different faces, which is that it becomes very ambiguous. And I think after writing this book, in tandem with my work in the studio, I became very interested in the cognitive dissonance between what you see and what you think you see. So for example, a face suddenly reconstituted between a man and a woman becomes an androgynous face, a face where the features look Latin or Hispanic or African-American, but the skin color is light, is a discomforting image because we can't quite place it racially, generationally, in terms of gender. And, and really, I think the world is full of faces we can't place. And as we age, we can't maybe face, place our own faces. And I think that's, to me, deeply humbling and deeply human and deeply fascinating. Well, and uh, I think your art sounds fascinating in the process by which you work from it. Um, two other things kind of in that vein about favorite portraits and self-portraits and the like. Uh, in this book, you mentioned, I thought this was fascinating as well, the caricature, the, literally the term itself comes from the Italian verb uh, caricare, to, to load, so that it's literally a loaded portrait. Right. Um, that's great stuff. Um, so I'm wondering about caricatures or even close-ups in movies, since we live in such a visual age. Anything you want to talk about in terms of how you, I mean, I imagine you, you're a moviegoer for one thing. Uh, everybody is, and especially after a year like this, uh, I, think what we, <laughs> what we, I think what we miss most is not just the movies, but the scale. Yes. And yes. Uh, one of the most interesting things I learned in researching the part of the book on film at close-ups was that back in the day when when films were primary were black and white a movie poster had a much more impactful resonance with the movie going community because you could actually see in full color the scale of the thing you were then going to see in the movie theater and so the role color played in truth telling the vibrance the luminosity the image making that actually wasn't full color you know, then you went into the movie theater and things were black and white and we watched wartime newsreels and things were black and white. And so I think that both scale and color played a much bigger role in sort of assembling for us ahead of time the images we would then pay to see moving. Um, but certainly there have been all sorts of books, better books than mine, I'm sure, written just about the film at close-up and about what it means to stage Shakespeare in a film and what it means to actually you know, have a different set of lenses as technology afforded different kinds of close-up possibilities. Uh, but I think particularly in this year, don't you miss going to the movies and seeing things on the big screen? I certainly oh, do. Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, I, I have a medium-sized TV screen, so it doesn't even come close to what I would experience and be captivated by on screen in a movie house. Plus, I like the social aspect, actually. And the popcorn. It, it, well, that too. I, I don't mind the popcorn. Yes. Um, so I'm a little curious, because uh, the book is, you know, full of interesting visuals, to say the least. Um, do you know if there's ever been a, this is a just kind of a trivial question, but do you know of any art museum that's actually done an exhibit based on family photo albums or on photo booth output? Because both of those uh, kind of forays in your book, I, I found really charming. There have been, I think, and, you know, without, off the top of my head, the book came out two years ago, so forgive me for not having that information top of mind, but I will say 
that vernacular photography collectors are a very special species of person. These are people who are interested primarily, I would say, in the social history of the photograph. They're not looking at the Ansel Adams quality of every aspect of every centimeter being in focus. They're interested in who was behind the camera. And in a sense, it's a wonderful question you're asking, Dan, because the whole book is premised on the question of who was behind the camera. The viewer and the viewed, what is the medical gaze? What is the male gaze? What is the superior gaze? What is the white gaze? And I think the idea of the photo booth is that you became the author of your own narrative in a way that not only was cursory and affordable and fun because often photo booth machines appeared in in places that were you know socially easy to get to festivals and fairs and and malls and so forth but that they in a sense was a kinetic experience you saw four images of yourself and so you know inevitably one was out of focus or in one you were cracking up (laughs) and there's something disarmingly wonderfully kind of human about that and i think so, so to come back to your question, there are collectors, there are wonderful books on the history of the photo booth. Like I, I, I looked at many of them for this book. And, and I think as a very close second to your question, I would put collectors of mugshots. Because that's a uh, very particular, it's not necessarily yeah. the same kind of kinetic civilian activity. But I think the idea that we can look at and deconstruct a story of petty crime and theft and Sadness. There are pictures of people in, in mugshots who are crying. There are picture uh, pictures that mugshots that where the person's out of focus because they're so distressed. And I think there's something really poignant about both of those forms of vernacular photography that I wanted to do a really deep dive into for this book. Sure, and naturally, and I was looking for it, and you did have Babyface Nelson, the uh, gangster from what the 20s or 30s yes. in the book. Yes. Um, how, how could you resist giving a name like that? So, so let's plunge into the the title of this because it's Vanity and Selfie Culture. And uh, why did you choose that title? It seems to me that uh, there's a lot to be said on the on the subject of selfie, but let's let's ramp it up to vanity as well. A really good loaded question there, Dan. I. <laughs> Now you put me on the spot. You know, I have given interviews about this book in which I've said that one of the driving forces was my personal antipathy uh, around selfie culture. I find that I love photography. I love collecting photography. I love, I have probably more photography books in my personal library than I have books on art, art and design combined. But I think the unlimited real estate of the internet and the capacity everyone has to wield that camera because it's on the phone makes for a kind of sloppy, messy, indulgent, myopic uh, contribution to the world of the portrait. Now, that's a kind of uh, superior, prof- professorial almost thing to say. And I've been really, I've been really, you know, I've I've encountered some resistance because I think that some people, particularly after this year, I might even change my answer a little bit. After this year, people communicate through photographs. They communicate by sending each other photographs. Instagram, Facebook, my God, the number of pictures take p- pictures people take of themselves. And there's a part of me that wishes people would take pictures of other things and, and other people and be less, less um, embroiled in their own stories and their own, I think, in some ways, forgettable stories. Uh, I I found very distressing in my research, and I still think this is a cause for concern as someone who who raised two children about the degree to which young people post 
pictures of themselves and they want them to be perfect. The use of filters, the use of facial filters, the use of filters that make you look thinner or different. The, the uptick in the need for nose jobs, which is a demonstrable evidentiary thing that the, the, the American Association of Plastic Surgeons has reported that when selfie culture rose, people wanted their noses to look better. And in fact, there's actually a way to take a selfie where your nose doesn't look truncated, but that's in a sense immaterial. It made people really self-conscious about the way they looked. And from there, I think for me, I immediately go to faces that look different than the normative. And the first chapter I wrote in this book, because I wrote them out of sequence, was the chapter on othering. And there's a fascinating story about sideshow people and people who looked different than the people in magazines and the fact that we discriminated against them and we put them on display in ways that were not very kind. And I think that those are stories that need to be told and we need to examine why we did them. And now people are discriminating against their own authentic self, I I might argue, by getting the nose jobs and making the alterations to make themselves more validated by others. They've kind of othered themselves. Correct. Almost at times. I mean, I've been asked if I could facially code Michael Jackson back in the day. And my answer was, uh, at a certain younger point in his life, yes. Eventually, Michael Jackson was not the Michael Jackson from Gary, Indiana. And no, I could not facially code him right. because there's simply too much plastic surgery. Right. There are, as you well know, some, some killer statistics in the book regarding what you've just talked about, that 2 billion images are uploaded every day on social media, that nearly 100 million of them are estimated to be selfies, and you said that every third photograph taken by an 18 to 24-year-old is of themselves. Are they moving toward understanding themselves better, or is this for display? What, what would you imagine might be the, the uh, storyline uh, there? Don't I wish it was understanding themselves better? <laughs> don't I wish? I mean, there's an argument to be made that close looking, which is a practice in art history, which is the yeah. more you look, the more you see, the more you want to see, the more you learn. There, I'm certain, are, are certain... Uh, very visually adept, dexterous, agile-minded young people out there who will learn something about themselves by looking that way. I would not say that is the majority of the people taking selfies. And the concern is that, you know, it's keeping up with the Joneses. It's it's Levittown. It's, it's comparison shopping. It's, you know, evaluating yourself against someone else, which is, I mean, I just, my newest book is on Ralph Waldo Emerson, and there could be nothing further from Emersonian logic than the idea that, you know, you are, you are you, you are unique. Now, might there also be someone who's photographing themselves in an effort to find their uniqueness? Absolutely. And that's the pushback I got that I actually listened to. And I think, I mean, there's, you know, people who are facially disfigured, who there are organizations for people who have suffered identity crisis situations, you know, not, not to their own, you know, based on accidents and based on all kinds of things where the need to resolve and support and come together around facial experience. That's not what we're seeing in the pages of people magazine is something that very much needs to be supported. And so I think there are particular communities of people who need to support one another. And to the degree that that is, I think, a deeply necessary part of culture everywhere. If, if the taking of the selfie helps those people, then by all means, bring it on. I, I just think that in general, the idea of a young person uh, downloading filters to not look like who they are, or worse, having a fake Instagram account uh, so they have this alter ego or taking pictures down because nobody liked them. That's, to me, a warning sign. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And obviously the caveat for those who need the surgery or it's beneficial in a 
in a way that's reconstructive after an accident or something makes total sense. Mm. Um, I wrote a dissertation back in the day called On Display, The Celebrity Self in Contemporary American Nonfiction. Really, uh, you know, fundamental to that was uh, appreciation of Daniel Borstein, mm -hmm. the historian, writing about self-reflection and how I much it was consuming us. about the image, his book, The yes, Image. Yes, I am. Yeah. That, was, that, that book should be on everybody's nightstand. I no, love I, that book. I think it's one of the most profound books that we've had in the last, you know, 75 years. It's I agree. Just, and he wrote it in 1960. Yeah, no, it's very prescient. In incredible. I, I should mean, be interviewing you about that dissertation, you know. <laughs> time to another turn the tables on Dan Hill. Well, an an another time, perhaps. But, uh, you know, in that same vein, we take it from Borstein on this arc to the point where, as you said, Time Magazine makes the person the year you in 2006. And it's the same year, if I understood correctly, that the selfie stick was invented. Right. Uh, and, and, I, and I wrote an essay about that, about, about Borstin <laughs> and that, because it is such a tautological concept to me, which was a very Borstin-like thing to think about. Yeah. So let's go on to another thing, um, bias. I just watched just the other night on Netflix, Coded Bias, uh, which has as its kind of star, as it were, uh, Joy with the impossible to say last name, uh, who is at MIT. Mm -hmm. Publisher um, of your book. Yes, yes, um, yes. Bulamini. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to murder it. I think it's pronounced yes. Bulamini, but yes. Yes. She so, writes about um, algorithmic bias, right? Yes, yeah. So, um, and that's in the book as well, um, to to one extent or another. So, take us down that pathway a little bit, if you don't mind. In the introduction, I was very clear about the fact that I I made great strides, made great efforts. I don't know that I made great strides. Great, I I made a great effort to try to tell the stories of faces that were not only white, that were not only privileged, that were not only famous. Uh, when I wrote my book on scrapbooks, it was the same thing. It was a needle in a haystack process, but I wanted to find sort of civilian stories to tell. And I think in the case of face, I, I make the point in the introduction that we failed to preserve the records of people and stories who were unlike the norm for so many generations that it makes this undertaking extremely difficult, but even more urgent. Uh, and so uh, included in the book is the work of young photographers who are unknown as well as known photographers. There are transgendered stories of faces where I have since become really interested in that. I'm, I'm very, very interested in facial feminization surgery and I all kinds of things I've since learned, you know, all kinds of hormonal suppressants can be taken so that faces can change shape and musculature can be addressed if taken before puberty. So all of this, these things that go on in the world right now about transgender rights are extremely important to me. So race, class, disfigurement, gender, uh, appropriation, um, uh, all of these things to me were very important to represent in the book and to talk about. And then finally, lucky for me because I was organizing the book alphabetically, things like surveillance and technology, which appear towards the end of the alphabet and towards the end of the book, got into the really, I think, ethically questionable practice of appropriating someone's face, of stealing someone's face, of identity theft in a way that is so much more pernicious because it's about your likeness. And not to put too fine a point on it, but I should say that identical twins can only open their each other's iPhones after the age of 13 because their faces have to be um, uh, developed enough uh, that they actually can do so. So the idea that, that even an identical twin is, a, is, an, is an original, it's not a carbon copy. 
All of these questions, I think, come to bear on every single human who looks at their phone, who looks in the mirror, who passes a stranger, who's disfigured in an accident. I mean, none of us are really uh, impervious to all of these kinds of observations because it's what we all share. It is our humanity that we, 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 we have faces. Uh, it is our humanity. I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack in that last answer. I'm going to go two different tangents at once just to affirm what you've said a bit. Uh, one is I should mention for listeners that the book is endorsed among by, among other people, Henry Louis Gates Jr., and I'm sure that's in part because this book does pay attention to broadening the lens uh, beyond just, uh, you know, shall we say more privileged white uh, upper-class people in the book. Uh, I remember one of my fascinations with a face that started so early with uh, my times in, in Europe, including uh, uh, seeing Rembrandt paintings uh, at the Rijksmuseum, was also my family's from North Dakota and uh, uh, were pioneers very close to an Indian reservation. I remember looking at the the, the photographs that were available of uh, Sitting Bull and so many other Indian chiefs, and I was so struck by their dignity which struck me as far greater than the dignity of uh, sometimes the soldiers chasing them down and, and certainly the people who ran the saloons that profited off it's a beautiful uh, story. Native Americans. So, so that's one angle. And I simply, I, I absolutely affirm that um, there's another angle here, which let's, let's you can go a bit deeper, which is on surveillance itself uh, in this documentary. I just watched, which I think if you wrote a second edition, I'm sure this would be another entry or possibility or expansion uh, it's mentioned that there are now nine leading companies, six in America, three in China, that are all pursuing surveillance. And it really comes on two levels. There's your identity, being able to pick you out of a crowd and hopefully knowing who you are correctly, because they very often get it wrong if you're not a, a white male. And the second one then is increasingly how you are actually feeling uh, that they can tr- use algorithms on. Um, how far have you gone down that path in the book uh, in terms of where this, this whole game is going to be played out? Wow. How much time you got, Dan? <laughs> um, that's a tough one. I mean, I will say uh, I, I got very interested in sex dolls. I got very interested in, uh, in the, the, the bigger field of, of how someone anticipates someone else's feelings, let alone need. Sure. Now, admittedly, yeah. if you're, again, if you, I, I can't speak for everyone. If you've been in an accident and you are, it, it, you know, I, I'm, you may cut this out of your show, but, but I think that there's probably purposes for sex dolls. I was only interested in the, the, the likeness of the woman who played the role for the presumed person wanting the sex doll, obviously speaks to a history of pornography and a history of, sort of torqued female anatomy that I thought deserved to be examined. It didn't seem to me commensurate with the technological advances of our time that these faces that were being retrofitted onto robots were so considered. And to that end, I did a lot of looking at a particular company and and robotics engineer in Japan where they've had enormous success with robots who greet you at department stores and robots who direct traffic and robots who do all sorts of things. And and this is a much bigger topic than just the face. The idea that we have these proxy representations of who we are that are tasked with doing work that in the perfect world alleviates toil and distressing uh, menial tasks so that we are thus freed to use our minds and our capabilities in other ways. Obviously, there's another argument that robots take jobs away, and there's all sorts of economic ramifications to that kind of, of debate. But I think 
where surveillance is concerned, it gets really tricky, right? What did you give, uh, who did you give the right to? And this gets back to who's behind the camera, right? I mean, who has the right to take your picture? I mean, I begin the book by talking about class photos. You, you go to school, your kid gets their picture taken. Suddenly there's a picture of your kid. Well, there are parents who don't want their kids' pictures on Facebook, and yet there's a class picture and somebody else might put it on Facebook. So the ethics of representation around who's behind the camera are unyielding and unending. And so now add to that police protection and passport control and border uh, security and all the kinds of things that are meant to make us feel safe. And yet if you're, and this is again in the book, if you're a person who wears a headdress, there are all kinds of rules for how you are photographed for your passport picture so that you can be seen. And yet you have a reason in terms of your national sense of identity that you want to be seen in a hijab or whatever the thing is that comes from your country, you have to then partake of some other rationale for how you are seen. The other statistic, of course, that's in the book is that if you have a driver's license in America and Georgetown, I think School of Law came out with this study a number of years ago, anyone with a driver's license is, is automatically entered into an FBI database. Now, again, did you give the right to the you know, universe to have your face in an FBI database when all you wanted to do was be able to get behind a wheel of a car. So yeah, no, and, how and how does a do car you... get you to that larger question of being part of the FBI? That's a kind of scary question. Yeah, no, I mean, in the uh, documentary Coded Bias, basically one of the questions was, how do you fight an algorithm? How do you fight the, just the progressive enveloping of all this, of our lives in all this technology? Right. Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult question. Right. Um, you know, and, uh, yeah, I, I once actually met with the head of the London police force and he had a wonderful story about how facial coding saved his life, that he was a young Lieutenant. Uh, he was interviewing a suspect in a prison cell. He just got a glimmer of anger on the face of the person and instinctively put his hand up and managed to stop the knife that the person had, had <gasps> hidden from going into his own body. Oh my goodness. So he, 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 he believed very much in facial coding. Yes. Um, and, and I love it in that sense. Obviously, I'm not, I'm not looking for someone to be stabbed to death, uh, but I've also traveled frequently to London and, and the prevalence of the cameras in London uh, is really quite pronounced. It's not to the extent of China, which I've also been to, but it is considerable. And so there are, that, that's one of the powers of this book of yours. There's, there's so many arcs going on from, from Borstein to the, to the selfie stick, from sex dolls, which are not in the book, but could have been, but on to a discussion about robots. Uh, where do you draw the line on the surveillance state and algorithms? <clears throat> My God, it goes on and on. L let's go to another topic here because there's one more I want to hit for sure. And that's personality and the extent to which uh, one might have a personality or change over time. I always thought this came from George Orwell, but apparently it's from Coco Chanel who said, nature gives you the face you have at 20. And life shapes the face you have at 30. But at 50, you get the face you deserve. It's the last line that I always thought came from Orwell, but apparently it's from her. Well, it's you very wanna... Orwellian as an idea. You're, you're not wrong. I'm sure that, that uh, I mean, the idea that you, there's only so much you can control, right? The, the hairline, it's in your DNA. You, if your father had a receding hairline, a young man may well have a receding yep. hairline. There's certain things that really, and there's a, a book that I, I cite in the book uh, that was um, with amazing illustrations by a guy who was a political cartoonist in New York who became really interested in heredity. And he did all these studies of, uh, of facial matching in terms of procreation and what you could anticipate and what you could expect, which, which gets at a question that, that I, I think you're asking, which is about um, measurement 
and uh, expectation. And the fact that if it's the face that you get at 50, I, I suppose maybe to come back to your example at Michael Jackson, uh, you know, the, the interventions are possible. And increasingly over time, robotic uh, interventions will be possible. Mechanical interventions will be possible. There's all kinds of ways, ways to, to change all kinds of things. But uh, I think the, your face does connect you to your community, right? Your face does connect you to your family. I was very interested in reading about adoption and reading about multiculturalism and reading about all kinds of things where, in a sense, I think you, I think it's um, Chuck Close who said the face is a blueprint, right? It's written on your face who you are, where you come from, and there's an implicit trajectory that's, that's very profound when you think about faces in that way. Yeah, no, I often use the phrase uh, signature expression that uh, many people have an expression that's kind of their baseline or they come to, and I think it does kind of sum up their, their worldview or their experiences, um, you use, in fact, in the, in the book, the term, which I loved, facial propaganda. Uh, and I think it was in the context of dating websites. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Well, I mean, obviously, for those on dating websites, that your face is what, that's what you're being judged on. It is the book by its cover. It is the, you know, that is the protocol. The modality of that shopping experience isn't about the books in your library or the car in your driveway. It's about what you look like. Uh, and I mean, I could actually say quite a bit about that because I think it's hilarious how people put pictures up that aren't in focus. But to your earlier question, Dan, <laughs> I think one of the things that's fascinating or was fascinating to me in thinking about facial propaganda and the face as a, as a testament to um, a kind of advertising was looking at political candidates. And I found this great, uh, this great phrase that, that Susan Sontag said where she talked about what she called the triangulated pose. The triangulated pose is is the famous portrait of um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on her poster, where she's you know, facing one direction and looking towards the other. And, and, and Sontag called it the gaze that soars. It's the idea that political candidates are always looking up, and they sort of, they take you with them. And there's this aspirational focus to that kind of portraiture that's specific to a political candidate. And yet, we look at faces, and you know this from your coding experience, that we deconstruct a baby-faced man is not thought of as someone who has the same kind of credentialed, aggressive, you know, powerful stance as a man with a square jaw. These things are, how, where do they come from? How are they baked into our consciousness as a kind of almost facial legibility that we seldom challenge? And so marketing people, advertising people, photographers, fashion magazines pick up on these codes. And then you bring in someone like Joy Bolomini who says, whoa, wait, stop the presses. What happens when you, the skin color is different? What happens when you're picking someone out of a lineup who has a different, a different posture? How are we actually gravitating to an understanding, a deeper, better, more emboldened and more impactful and expansive understanding of what humanity is by looking at these things? I mean, we have to be more than the sum of our parts. We just have to be. Couldn't have said it better, and that's why we have you on the show. Thank you. So I'm uh, going to wrap this up. This has been episode number 58. The topic's been vanity and selfie culture, but as you can tell, we've gone a lot of other places as well. Uh, my wonderful guest, Jessica Helfand, her book is called Face a Visual Odyssey. I urge you to pick up a copy. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes by going to my company's website where they're all listed, or you can go to the New Books Network website uh, and uh, find them under MBN's original special series programming list. So that's sensorylogic.com 
or the New Books Network. Either one will give you a, a list of all the episodes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In light of today's topic, somehow I settled on this quote that I'd never come across from William Shakespeare before. He said, the false face must hide what the false heart doth know. The ever wise William Shakespeare. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Thank you.